first on film and entertainment, and it's also Have Fun at Greg King's Expense Day. Greg King, good morning. Good morning, Alex, and we're not going to have fun at my expense. Yes, we are, because the St Kilda Football Club is imploding and they have done the wrong thing by a very decent human being who had his stay as coach, well, re re-engineered, endorsed, re-endorsed, call it what you will, less than 100 days ago, and then they get rid of him. How fair is that? Not very fair, and it's not like he's someone who can't kick goals from 20 metres out. Very well put. Peter Krause, talking about kicking goals, are you going to enjoy this conversation, are you? I really have no interest whatsoever. Hang on, hang on. on. Why do you not care about another human being and his life and livelihood? Because I'm not interested in all the machinations of football clubs and Essendon being the benchmark. Excuse me. We (laughs) should have seen. Thank you, Peter. We love headlines. Front page, back page, no news can be bad news. What do you reckon, Dave Griffiths? Oh, look, I'm just really looking forward to seeing St Kilda and Essendon merge so they might be able to have a barely functioning board between them. <laughs> I, I reckon this is terribly unfair. As I've said to you before, we don't have the white stripe down the middle of our backs. That's only St Kilda, and it should be about pitchforks now, right? That's Melbourne, that's Melbourne sign. That, well, you can steal it from them. Would that not be a good idea? What is going to, you know, would you be a coach for all the money in the world? That The question becomes, would you be a coach or would you be a politician for all the money in the world? There's only one prime minister, there are 18 coaches, and very rarely does it end well. Is that not correct, Greg? Well, we can look at a couple of other cases. Geelong have had um, Chris Scott for 11 years here for two premierships and he's had his ups and downs there, but they've stuck by him, which is what a club should do. And Richmond, Damien Hardwick's been there a long time. 2017, the year they won the premiership, they were talking about getting rid of him at the start of the year. Now he's got three premierships in four years. So, you know, you've got to stick with your coach. You've got to back them and you've got to provide them the support they need. Yeah, I think that, that that's the truth here, Greg, that the support wasn't there and if there were identifiable problems, then... I, I think sure. most of the identifiable problems start at board level and work their way down. So you want to get to the board? Yeah. Mm. Dave? Yeah, I agree. But, like, uh, the same thing I saw with John Longmire coming in in Sydney. People said that he was the, the wrong man for a job, and now I think he's got one of the best win-loss ratios of modern-day coaches. His team's only missed the finals for two years since he's been there, and he's been there for more than a decade. So I think sometimes you need to to stick with a coach. Mm. But I feel for Brett Ratton because of the list that he's got. I mean, they just went right. through a trade period where they said, we need to bring in better players, and the only player they brought in was Ace Cordy. And no offence to Ace Cordy, but he's not a premium player that's going to turn it around for St Kilda. And we spent $800,000 a year on Daniel Henry, who is injury-prone. He only played about a dozen games for us, so that's a waste of money. We could have bought in three or four young players for that money. But, I mean, this is all about the destination club. You look at Geelong. They've had the best trade period that I, I can remember. I'm extraordinary in terms of the talent that they've brought into the club. They'd be laughing all the way to the next premiership. And then you look at Melbourne, you look at Richmond. These are the top clubs. Where's this equalisation that the AFL is 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 sprouting. And then players are now nominating. They don't want to go into state. Well, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Probably a good thing because why would you want to invest in a player and then two years later they're gone? I mean, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, Dave. 
No, and also I think the other thing too we've got to look at this week is St Kilda sacking Ratton has probably kept another story off the front page, and that is the Western Bulldogs who had two of their star players wanting to leave the club. What's going on there? I agree. I agree. And this is where it's it's kind of interesting because I reckon Ross Lyon would be certainly the front runner for the St Kilda job, but they they could do worse than getting the Western Bulldogs coach, couldn't um, they? Alex, do you, do you recycle club coaches? Ross Lyon has had his chance at St Kilda. Yeah, but he it was he, he who left ahead of him sort of because of all the machinations at St Kilda. So why would you want to come back to that kind of background and, and carry on? Well, because Rewalt is the one who's pushing him. I mean, he's one of those who's pushing him and is a great believer in in his man management. But I mean, he's got okay. a, quite an aggressive style. The implication here is that you, you want somebody who's more ruthless. That that was the implication. Yeah, and I think if Lyon came in, he'd also make some wholesale changes at the club. I think you'd mm. see people like um, Lenny Hayes and Lee Montagna brought on and probably Nick Rewalt as well to help him out there. Yeah, I, w- I would agree. But, I mean, bear in mind that they did have Beveridge in mind. He was going to be what their – was it footy manager or what was he before he, he was appointed Western Bulldogs coach? It was our list man. It was our um, um, co- um, talent spotter and list manager, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, we'll see what we'll see what gives, and I reckon this is a really nice entree on first on film and entertainment to introduce something to do with blood. Mona Lisa and the Blood Moon. I'm talking about MA rated, 106 minutes, intriguing, entertaining mystery fantasy thriller, and the character of Mona Lisa. Well, it's, her name is really Mona, but it's Mona Lisa Lee, played by Jun Jong Seo. We get to see her wearing a straight jacket, locked up in a padded cell in a United States psychiatric institution for younger people. She's regarded as violent, a severe schizophrenic, and she's been there for 12 years. She's only 22. But after a bloody incident, she breaks free. It's a night of a full moon, and she makes her way to nearby New Orleans. That's where she interacts with the flotsam and jetsam. By then, she's already shown that she has a supernatural ability to make people do what she wants them to do merely by looking into their eyes. And that's how she comes to the aid of a stripper, Bonnie Hunt, played by Kate Hudson, who's being pummeled by another woman. Hunt takes this young lady, Mona Lisa Lee, under her wing and is soon using Mona Lisa to her financial advantage. Not Mona Lisa's, but Hunt's financial advantage. And Hunt has this 11-year-old son called Charlie, played by Evan Witten, who does not approve of her mother's way of life. Charlie soon befriends a naive Mona Lisa. But all the while, on Mona Lisa's tail is a local policeman known as Officer Harold, played by Craig Robinson. So this film, Mona Lisa and the Blood Moon, concentrates on an unusual titular hero and her misadventures. And the screenplay and the direction are from Anna Lily Emilpour. It's like, I reckon it's a bloody little charmer, quite frankly, because it, it often throws up the unexpected and it's all the better for doing so. The characters get in all sorts of strife, but there is warmth in the screenplay. And I reckon that the vacant look that Jun Jong Seo has adopted suits her characterization as this young 22-year-old 
who more than once declares that she doesn't want to go back there, talking about the institution. Uh, and notwithstanding her ability to inflict harm, I reckon we, the audience, are on her side, are we not, Dave? Oh, definitely. This is one of those films I think that's absolutely destined to become a cult classic. Um, this is an exciting director, of course, um, her film eight years ago, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, was one of those movies that just, I think, stunned a lot of audiences and was were really keen to see where she went from there. The Bad Batch was the follow-up, which wasn't a great film, but I think this does show that we have got someone genuine here that that knows their craft but also knows how to make a film that just throws up unexpected moments after unexpected moments for, for the audience. And this is one of of those films where it seems to be coming out and nobody knows anything about the film. I hadn't even watched a trailer for it before we went along to the screening of this film. And I think that actually works in its favour because it absolutely stuns you and you enjoy watching it because it's not something that you've seen three or four trailers for before you walk into the cinema to watch it. Well, I'm a, I'm a big believer in not watching trailers, to be honest, Dave. I mean, at times you can't help it because you're in a cinema and they, they show it. I I've been known to close my eyes and put my fingers in my ears because I I, just, I don't like it. I I want to go in there and be wowed. And this, you're right. This film does that. By the way, I should say that we, we're given the impression that this this woman is a Korean immigrant to the United States who has been abandoned. That that's sort of the background to it all. Did you like it, Greg, or not? Yes, Greg? I, I I thoroughly enjoyed this one. I, weren't sure where it was going when it started. It looked like it was going to be a horror movie with that opening scene set in the um, asylum there, but it becomes much more of a character study. Most of the characters are unlikable and flawed, but they're very interesting and they're well-developed there. Um, and I like the unpredictable narrative arc that the film follows. Um, Kate Hudson, I thought, was great as Bonnie, almost cast against type here as the um, selfish stripper who only befriends Mona to exploit her talents there. And I really like Evan Witten as... Um, her son there, I, he showed a maturity beyond his years there. And the film was very evocative of New, New Orleans nightlife there. It, it had that sleazy, seedy feel to it as well, thanks to the cinematography there. I thought the music score was excellent as well, and it drove along there. So, yeah, this was um, a surprise. I didn't know what to expect going in there. I didn't know much about the film or anything. Um, and it's a complete surprise, and it's thoroughly enjoyable. And the longer it goes on, the better it got, I thought. Yeah, I, it's funny you say that because I had the same impression. I've really, I, I got a lot out of it. And what about the the character who is the the guy she meets outside the convenience store? What a hoot! You know, the the drug dealer come DJ. I thought he was terrific. What's his name? Fuzz. I think that's his character name. Uh, Peter, did you enjoy it as much as the rest of us? I liked the film. Uh, I think it had a good so story arc. No. <laughs> I like the film. It's sort of coming down from we really enjoyed it. You didn't really enjoy it? No, I didn't say that. I said I liked the film. I had a good story arc and uh, I liked the way the plot developed. I think for me it was missing a bit of backstory uh, about the Mona uh, Lisa character. I thought suddenly 
for her to emerge with these special powers, I thought, well, I don't know. I, I would like to have some sort of brief explanation about that. I, I like the uh, writer-director's previous, uh, one of her previous films, The Girl Who uh, Walks Home uh, at Night, because that had such a special atmosphere and resonance to it. I think this one doesn't quite have the same thing, uh, even though the New Orleans setting um, uh, is very um, uh, evocative, uh, if you like, with the characters involved. Yes, I did like Kate Hudson, and uh, her character is well-developed. Uh, it's interesting to see, as you mentioned, the character of Fuzz, played by Ed Skrein. Originally, that was going to be Zac Efron's role, but uh, he turned it down. Um, and to some extent, I can possibly understand that because it's a, a not a, a terribly um, winning sort of role. Look, overall, I, I did like the film. I would have liked a bit more backstory. I, I thought the overall story arc was well made, well presented, um, but I suppose I'm not uh, waxing as poetic about the film as uh, you both are. No, correct. I mean, look, there's this sort of what, what about the sort of dog-at-a-bone mentality that Craig Robinson inhabits, you know, with his portrayal of the policeman on the hunt? I thought that was a, an interesting character as well. And Corey Roberts, larger than life, the, the, the strip club bouncer Snacky, that's another character. They are real characters, aren't they, Dave? The, the, the film is populated with plenty of them. They are, and I really applaud the casting in this film as well because there's some brave choices. Like you said, Craig Robinson... He's known for his comedy, and let's be honest, he's known for his bad comedies, really. So um, it's a good casting, good casting because he works in the role, but it was a very brave casting choice. There's also a very brave casting choice, of course, as well, with uh, Jion jong Seo in the lead role because she's not a known um, name in America. She's done a few Netflix um series and films and things like that. So even that is a brave casting. A lot of people in the United States go to see movies based on names being in the film. So very brave choices, but they all pay off. And I think we've also got to give credit as well to um to Evan Witten, who plays Charlie. He's fantastic in this film. He's one mm. of those child actors. He's probably not even old enough to go and watch the film that he's starring in, but um Brilliant he's got vulnerability, Dave, hasn't he? he? Got vulnerability and spirit, both of those things, and he does that. He, he's he's a really he's a really talented young kid, isn't he? He mm. is, and yeah, I I always love that when there's actors who are so young that they actually can't buy a ticket to go see the film that they're in, but they do such an amazing job. And uh, I've spoken to directors over the years, and that adds another element to the film as well because the director almost in a way has to shield that child actor from some of the things that's happening in the film, even things that are happening in scenes that they're in. So, yeah, it's always interesting when you've got a child actor in a film such as this that's for an adult audience. Greg, I, was yeah. thinking, I was thinking of Jacob Tremblay in Good Boys. Yeah. He wasn't even old enough to see the film that he was in, but it had some raunchy material in it that was probably beyond his um, years. Greg, the other thing that struck me, the visuals, the production design in this, it really showcases sleaze and 60s chic, and I think it does it really well. There's got there's a style about this film. Have you ever been to New Orleans or not? And the yes, French I have. Yeah, I mean, I I, I instantly recognised it, and there, there is this sort of permeation of uh, the sleaze factor there, isn't there? Mm. And, the, and the glittery lights and the, um, the glitch 
the lights, and, but the sleazy side of it as well with the strip clubs and all that kind of stuff. I thought it caught it really, really well. Yeah, there was also there was that scene that fluoro fluorescent you know t-shirts and all that sort of stuff. That's where I was sort of thinking of the sixties. Uh, all of that, it I thought it looked it's stylish. It really, it, Peter, did that strike you as well? Yeah, the production design, the the, the stylish quality of the film is certainly there, um, but I I wasn't quite sure how that fitted into the central character and her special powers um, and her relationship with Kate Hudson, even though that was reasonably well developed as the film progressed. Um, I, I think there are some contradictory elements in the film which uh, I thought wasn't quite adequately resolved, but nevertheless, a good film. Well, I mean, it's a quirky fairy tale. It's a twisted fairy tale, you know, with light and shade. And I agree with Greg. It, it certainly grew on me the longer it progressed. Let's kick it off with you, Greg. Score out of 10, please. Eight out of 10. Mm-hmm. Dave. I'm going a bit higher. I really liked it. I'm giving it nine out of 10. And we should mention the soundtrack as well, an amazing soundtrack of underground indie artists from the United States. Not very good. I'm giving it a seven and a half to an eight. And Peter? What about a seven from you, maybe? Uh, no, I actually I give the film six out of ten because I think it's oh, missing wow. missing some backstory. Wow. Okay. It's all right. You can be – we can start off uh, this segment very, very well. Peter's wrong. It's good. Fantastic. <laughs> good stuff, Peter. Nice start. Nice start. Okay. <laughs> now let me, let me challenge you then with another film that uh, – well, it, it's Halloween Ends – uh, are we pleased that Halloween ends, Peter, or are we not? Uh, it's please enough already of all these <laughs> Halloweens. Get rid of Michael Myers forever. Oh, well, hang on, hang on. There's but, been... Hang on, don't we know? Don't, haven't we realised over forty years of watching these films that, that you can't get rid of movie monsters like this? They always come back either in sequels, remakes, or reboots. Yeah, exactly. And there's been what thirteen of these. That's my understanding. I gave up counting a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. Is, that, is it right? Uh, is that is that right, Dave? Thirteen. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, notwithstanding the fact that the title is Halloween Ends, and, and there's been three since the reboot. It is fair to ask whether Michael Myers, played by James Jude Courtney, will ever die. And we're not about to give you the answer to that, but we can say that his bloodlust has not dissipated. And this is quite a chilling finale to what is a slasher franchise. So Claret will most certainly be spilt and the body count will mount. So no horror fan would expect it to be any other way. And why should they? It's set, of course, in Haddonfield in Illinois, and it starts out on Halloween night in 2019. You've got a 21-year-old by the name of Corey Cunningham, played by Rowan Campbell, who is babysitting a youngster who pays him no respect. And then something bad happens. Next, we cut to Laurie Stroud, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, whose life has been consumed by the masked serial killer and who's finishing her memoir, detailing her experiences. Now, Strode has, has built a trusting friendship with a fellow survivor called Lindsay Wallace, played by Kyle Richards, with whom she has built a trusting friendship. It's four years after the events of Halloween Kills that came out only last year. Strode has bought a house in Haddonfield where she settled with her adult granddaughter, Alison, played by Andy Matichak, who is a nurse. And although Alison has survived an onslaught from the mass murderer, her parents did not. Alison hooks up with outcast Corey Cunningham, the one who is the babysitter, both of whom are living with and dealing with their respective traumas. But there's 
is hardly a conventional courtship. Both continue to be picked on, Cunningham in particular, and the pathological killer reappears in Haddonfield. In trying to protect her granddaughter, Strode merely succeeds in alienating her. Also reappearing in Halloween Ends in smaller role is Will Patton as Officer Frank Hawkins. So there we have it. Great to see Jamie Lee Curtis back fighting the good fight against Resident Evil, and she has on that don't mess with me look. And I actually also appreciated Andy Matichek's characterisation of her granddaughter, desperate to leave the past in the past and move on with her life. Rowan Campbell, well, he does most of the heavy lifting as Cunningham goes through a metamorphosis from withdrawn to empowered. And the screenplay is by the director, David Gordon Green. He, he's been at the helm of and has co-written all three films since the franchise restarted in 2018. So screenplay by him, by Paul Brad Logan, Chris Bernier and Danny McBride. Uh, I, I look, it's, it's, it's okay. It's reasonably engaging for what it is. Uh, and it also allows for a super quick stock take of all that Strode has gone through before heading toward yet another confrontation with Myers. What did you think of it, Dave? Look, it's interesting because I think David Gordon Green probably has one of the most difficult roles in cinema this year in finishing off this franchise because, let's be honest, if he gets it wrong, horror fans will let him know online. It's... um. One of the, the things that goes along with being a horror filmmaker is that your fans are very vocal online. I kind of like the fact that for the, about the first quarter of this film, you're left thinking, where is this film going? I think a lot of people will go into this film expecting that it will just literally be battle after battle of Laurie versus Michael. And they may actually be thrown a little bit that uh, without giving anything away. You don't see Michael for a huge chunk of this film. Um, so I think a lot of people will be wondering about that. But also, I think it's a very brave choice by David Gordon Green and his screenwriters to do that. At times, the film actually feels like it's more of a, a, a sequel or a, or a trilogy part of the It franchise than it does um, Halloween. But I like that he makes that really brave choice. Um, I don't think we're ever going to see another Halloween movie that's as good as the originals. Um, and largely because John Carpenter's not that involved with them these days other than just okaying the script at the end. But, look, it, it's okay. Um, I don't think it's the greatest Halloween film of all time, but it, it's okay. That's what I'll say. Well, I mean, returning from Halloween and Halloween Kills, uh, I'm talking about the 2018 version of Halloween and 2021, the director of photography, the production designer, the makeup artist, the editor, the costume designer, the composers. So, I mean, uh, you know, that obviously consistency is not a bad thing. What did you think of it, Greg? I sort of liked it up to a point there. Uh, it's not the best, as Dave said, it's not the best Halloween movie there, but it certainly has enough to... Um, blood and guts to entertain there. But the thing to take away from this is the way it shows that bullying and um, abuse and trauma can create monsters of its own out of anybody there. Um, I like Jamie Lee Curtis. She has a strength in the role there. And I thought she looked younger here than she did in um, Halloween Kills somehow. Um, but she has a good, solid presence as Laurie Stroud there, who's haunted by the spectre of Michael Myers, Um and um, it goes into psychological territory there. It explores the theme of trauma there. David Gordon Green did a great job, I thought, with the direction there. Um, and I thought John Carpenter's iconic score still manages to send chills up your spine there. Um, and it's a good way to finish up the series. 
or is it? Haha, <laughs> very good. Well, look, I think it's also a satisfying conclusion. No shortage of violence, blood, gore. I mean, they're the staples of the genre, aren't they, Peter? Yes, they are, but they've been handled in a much better way in other uh, recent horror films like Smile. Um, the problem I have with uh, Halloween Ends is the uh, the impact of uh, having the Michael Myers character influencing this uh, this young man and sort of the spirit uh, sort of starts to inhabit him. Um, I, I don't know about that. I, I think that uh, is a questionable aspect of the way the plot develops. I think this film is also a triumph rather than of direction of editing. The editing process in this film is quite phenomenal because it, it takes a lot of scenes and the editor has put, put them together in such a way to give you the impression that this is a, a really fascinating and involving film. I didn't quite feel that, but uh, nevertheless, technically, uh, it is well made. I really enjoyed Jamie Lee Curtis's performance. Uh, it's so good to see see her having such a powerful role uh, again in this sort of franchise. Um, I just wasn't t totally convinced by the way the plot developed, just like uh, the, the previous film we talked about, Mona Lisa and the Blood Moon. So uh, again, there are issues about writing, uh, which I always find can be problematic. Uh, and in this case, editing has sort of papered over all of that. I think there's a psychological element to Jamie Lee Curtis's and the way that she sort of characterises her character so well. Uh, I mean, she look, she knows the character inside out, doesn't she, Peter? And that helps. But the way yes. that, I, think the, I, I think the writing of her character in this one has been very, very strong. You didn't think that? Uh, her character, yes, yes. But, but I think the whole uh, Halloween franchise and the idea of Halloween ends hasn't quite been as pulled off as well as I would have liked. Okay, so here's my here's my question to you: When are they going to make another one? Um, I think there there will be a break before we see Michael Myers again. But I I do expect, like Greg, to see Michael Myers reappear. Somebody else will pick it up and run with it. But it could be ten or more years. What do you think? Oh, look, the spirit, the idea of a spirit of Michael Myers being able to inhabit other people, uh, as created in this film. Of course, there's going to be other versions. Mm, exactly. All right. So you start off, Peter. Score out of ten. Uh, yeah. Yes. Uh, look, um, it, it wasn't too bad, I suppose, but uh, I, I had some problems with it. Uh, six out of ten. Mm -hmm. Greg, uh, I'll give it six out of ten too. Dave, yeah, I'm going six out of ten as well. And I liked it a bit more. Six and a half out of ten for mine. So there we go. That is. Yeah, well, we like horror films, though, Alex. No, no, no. Well, look, I suppose, Greg, in, in fairness, I've seen a lot of horror movies since. Remember, in the bad old days, I, I really struggled with it. I've got used to it. I, look, I, I agree. Peter, what was the film you referenced? Smile. I mean, yes. I, I thought Smile was a far superior film. I, I gave Smile an eight out of ten or eight and a half. I think it was eight. And I think, Dave, you liked that a lot too, didn't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. And horror is one of my favourite genres. So, yeah, I'm on the opposite scale to you. I, and I probably judge Halloween ends a little bit more harshly because of that, just because it is one of my favourite genres and I see so many films in that genre. Yeah, so so gradually uh, I'm sort of thawing, shall we say, and getting used to it. I mean, there have been some really terrifying horrors. There's no question about it. And this, I suppose there is a different, this is a real slasher. Uh, I mean, sometimes they're horrors, sometimes they're slasher. Do you like both, Greg, or not? 
I like well done horror films. I mean, some of my favourite films include the, uh, the original Omen, The Exorcist, which are horror films that were of that classic style there, where it wasn't so much blood and guts and slasher, but more the atmosphere they created. But I mean, yeah, that's what I'm getting at. So, but the cha- yeah. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I mean, that, that's a slasher, right? Uh, straight yeah, on. Yeah, it had its moments, but yeah, uh, some slasher films are okay when they're done well, and some are just stomach churning um, nonsense. Mm. Let's turn to a movie called The Stranger, which is also MA rated. All three movies today so far have been 117 minutes based on fact, a really grim story of endeavour and perseverance set in the year 2010, 2010. Hardly a conventional police procedural. Paul, played by Steve Mazakas, meets a dishevelled ex-con, Henry Teague, Sean Harris, on a bus. The former is talkative. The latter is not. So Paul talks, Henry doesn't say much. But Henry ends up doing Paul a favour. In turn, Paul wants to repay Henry's kindness and sets him up for a job with his employer. It's clear at this point that the job is not above board. Henry makes it clear that he does not do violence. Paul hooks Henry up with Mark, played by Joel Edgerton, who schools him on the requirements of the organisation they work for. The number one rule is complete transparency, regardless of their past. Henry recognises there's money to be made here and over time is introduced to the man running the show whose name is John, played by Alan Dukes. I've deliberately been evasive in plot. I do not want to spoil the surprise. I don't want to give the game away. But let me add, there's a lot more going on here than it first meets the eye. It's written and directed by Thomas M. Wright. It's tense. It's bleak throughout. So many characters in this movie are seemingly all but permanently on edge, and they do well to seek psychological counselling. Sense of dread permeates the film. I was really impressed. The grittiness, knockout performances from Joel Edgerton, Sean Harris and Jada Alberts, and I'll talk about her a bit more, but Edgerton plays really tightly wound with distinction. Even when he buys a new set of clothes, Harris looks like an unmade bed, and his insularity, his vacant look, help make Henry T. creepy, and Albert's frustrations as Detective Rylett are on full display. There's, there's a chilling authenticity about this movie, The Stranger. Edgerton started developing the project after reading the book The Sting by Kate Kariaku, which sheds light on a remarkably painstaking operation. I reckon Wright and co have done it justice on film with their gloomy approach to the material. Soundscape, really powerful and evocative, and I speak particularly of the natural sound used in this production. Cinematography by Sam Chiplin is dark and foreboding. Is it not, Peter? It definitely is. The The air of tension uh, in this film is palpable, and uh, what really impressed me about this film is the very careful character creation and the police operation that uh, is part of this film. Thomas M. Wright is such a a, a good director. I mean, his film Acute Misfortune about the artist Adam Cullen was just a a superb evocation of that uh, sort of uh, psychological tension and drama and issues related to that artist. In this case, The Stranger or The Unknown Man, as the film was going to be called uh, at one stage um, when I spoke to Tom 
Thomas about that. He he said that they used that as a working title, uh, but then they reverted to The Stranger when another film with that title <laughs> uh, disappeared. Uh, so The Stranger is there. Look, uh, excellent procedural film, uh, undercover police work. The, um, the roles of Joel Edgerton and Sean Harris are just absolutely superb in the way that they represent these very tense roles. The idea of Joel Edgerton uh, also being quite concerned because he has a son in this film and there are issues about the actual um, kidnapping and murder that the film is based on that could permeate his own uh, situation. Look, there is so much to admire and enjoy about this, uh, uh, appreciate about this Australian film. I was very impressed. Yeah, it's, it really is. I mean, it, it's the dialogue is sparse and, and you really have to concentrate because there's a lot of deliberate mumbling in the delivery of lines, Greg, isn't there? Uh, yeah, um, it is, and it's a very bleak, grim film, I thought. But, look, Australian filmmakers seem to be fascinated with these true crime stories. Films like Snowtown, Chopper, Nitrum have all been dark, bleak films too, exploring violence and the psychology of these criminals there. And this one does the same thing there. Um, I think that um, Thomas M. Wright here, as he did with um, Acute Misfortune, has employed an impressionistic approach to the material that doesn't always come off there. As you said, it's very bleak and dark. The cinematography is gloomy. A lot of the um, scenes take place at night. Um, And the relationship between Mark and Henry here is quite uneasy, but I thought it did... um, Joel Edgerton and Sean Harris did a good job of conveying that tension there. Um, You've got the contrast between the two men, one a remorseless killer, the other a decent cop, but both living a lie here. And as Peter referenced there, Mark is also juggling the demands of his job here um, and dealing with all these horrible crimes and everything with the uh, that of being a single father, raising his young son and trying to cope with the emotional and psychological toll of undercover work there. And I thought Edgerton portrayed it stress of this duality really well there. Um, there's a rawness to the film as created as permeated by a creeping sense of dread and unease, as you've said there, and the dark and brooding cinematography from um, Sam Chiplin does add to that brooding tone there. Um, it's, the visuals are deliberately bleak and stylish and the disjointed editing technique here is also jarring with its abrupt cuts and everything, which is further un- Heightens the unsettling mood. Look, it's not an entertain, it's not a, an enjoyable film, what you can call it, but you can appreciate it for its aesthetics and its um, cinematic cinematic techniques. Absolutely, I mean, it's a film for selective taste. I think we've got to say that, but but it really serves up noteworthy, I should say, disturbing stuff. Uh, you know, it's the stuff of nightmares, isn't it, Dave? It is, and this is going to be one of my favourite films of the year. Um, I I fell in love with this film. I saw it at the at the premiere at IMAX, which was which I think actually made this film stick to me even more. Um, you felt like you were part of the film just because of how big the screen was in front of you. It made you feel like you wanted to go and have a shower after mm-hmm. you'd watched the film. But I saw that as as the film working. The performances here are just absolutely amazing. I I compare this to films like Knit Ram and um, Van Diemen's Land, which Thomas Wright also acted in. But I think it's got the Joel Edgerton factor with this film. Joel, as a filmmaker away from acting, has made some amazing films and written some amazing films. Um, the Square is one of my favourite Australian films, um, and he did an amazing job with that film. He 
I don't know. It's just why he's one of those people where it doesn't matter if he's acting, directing, or writing. He always seems to be at the top of his game. And this is a disturbing film. A lot of people said that that Nit Ram dist- disturbed them. This film will disturb you as well. But I just see that as the the power of the acting and the power of the filmmaking in front of you, that this is one of those stories. And, and like I said, you may feel dirty after you've watched it, but I think that's an indication that the film has worked. Yeah, I totally agree with you. It is a pretty special piece of product. That there's no question about it. it I, I dare say it. the crowds aren't going to be massive, but the people who appreciate fine cinema will certainly appreciate The, the Stranger. Rated MA, 117 minutes. Score out of 10, Dave? I'm giving it 10. This is one of my favourites of the year and it'll be wow. it'll take a very special film to make this not be my number one film of the year. Peter? Uh, very good film. I think it will be a major contender at this year's Australian Academy Awards um, and uh, I gave it 8 Australian out of 10. Academy Awards. Uh, I think we're, we're getting a little bit uh, high horse here. Uh, you, you're talking about the Australian Film Awards, I presume. The Australian Academy of Cinema and Television Arts, they are referred to as the Australian Academy Awards. Yeah, I think I think every country, I think there's one Academy Awards and the rest have got their own awards that are, uh, yes, it, I, I'm delighted we have our own awards, but it's kind of like the Ophir Awards in Israel, etc. It's terrific to win one, but, um, yeah, it's it, they're not the Academies. It's- Can I just ask Peter a question there, Alex? Peter, do you see that this could be an actual contender at the Academy Awards? Uh, the American Academy Awards? Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, uh, I, nah, that's a hard question to answer. Um, possibly uh, Joel Edgerton's name uh, could um, cause it to re- receive a nomination or two. Hard to tell because it will depend on promotion and publicity. Um, but maybe. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's going to be a Netflix, it's a Netflix film in yeah. America as well. So, I'd like to think it could be a contender, but I'm not sure. I, you know, I, I'd love it to get a nomination. I think it'd be terrific. But um, yeah, what 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 score out of ten for you? Uh, sorry, Peter, I didn't catch that. Oh, uh, eight out of ten. Eight out of ten. Okay, I'm giving it an eight as well. And what about you, uh, Greg? I'm going to go a bit lower to you because, as I said, I, I didn't find it a particularly enjoyable film to sit through I, I appreciate it for its cinema photography but it's not a film for everybody i don't think as well um and i, I gave it six and a half you, you do realize a six and a half wow uh, that's a that's a particularly low score i thought based on on the movie but yeah i just i just felt uncomfortable watching the whole film um and there's just something about it found a bit creepy and unsettling and um no as i said it's not a film i'm going to enjoy and i don't think a lot of people will no, but isn't that the point? I mean, that, that's that's what possibly. See, the other thing about this is often the American Academy Awards, Peter, uh, the films that are nominated are not necessarily big films, are they? The ones that you know win win awards are not necessarily populist films, but they're good films. They're great films. So, I mean, I, yeah. Anyway, that that it'll be interesting to see what happens with hap- what happens with it. Is there any other film that we can sort of say that we've seen in Australia in the last two or three years that's better than The Stranger? What do you think, Dave? Um, I would possibly say maybe Nitram, but I think they would actually be on par with each other, not better than each other. What about you, Peter? 
I actually agree. Neatrim, I, I thought, was even better than uh, The Stranger. Okay. And Greg? No, I'd go with Neatrim too, but yeah. Okay. No, no, I'm just, just curious. Terrific. Okay, so that is The Stranger. Let's talk to a film or talk about a film that opens or opened yesterday at IMAX called The Last Glaciers. A filmmaker, a filmmaker behind it is Craig Leeson, and I don't know whether you know you know that name, but he's also Tasmania's Australian of the Year this year, 2022. And he set out to make a documentary about extreme sport and ended up making a film about climate change, incorporating para-alpine skiing, which is the extreme sport that he wanted to concentrate on. Filmed in 12 countries over four years, there were four expeditions. The Last Glaciers shows the global threat posed, and it's particularly disturbing. So let me give you a couple of facts. Ice the size of two Titanic ships melts in Antarctica, which is the source of 70% of the world's drinking water, every 10 seconds. Peru, which has 68% of the globe's tropical glaciers, is facing a national emergency. Since the 1970s, it's lost more than half its glaciers, and it's estimated that within 40 years, they could all be gone. So the last glacier shows us the impact of climate change, how the bottom of the mountains that were snow-covered are now sheer rock. Leeson, who narrates, joins NASA on an airborne research mission over the largest ice sheet in the world. He also uses the extreme sport that he came to film to inform the audience of what can be seen from above. And I speak of para-alpine skiing, which Leeson learned how to do for this documentary. He undertakes a dangerous tandem paraglide from 6,000 metres, where the pair is buffeted by extreme winds. In the background are dying glaciers. So it takes to the streets as well to film children imploring governments to act to protect our planet. That includes a short clip with the Swedish environmental activist Greta Thunberg. For all its good intentions, though, I found the last glaciers too bitsy. It moved around too much from place to place, and although we got the gist of what was intended, we did not see enough from any single location. I dare say a razor-sharp focus with more insight from experts on the ground, wherever that may be, would have been better. And for all the talk of the extreme sport, I don't think that ropey aerial shots added anything. In fact, they ended up as a distraction from what became the purpose of the film. And I understand that the point behind making the doco changed when Leeson saw what he saw for himself, but then why not focus on obtaining the best shots possible? With IMAX, surely the finest cinematography should be the gold standard. Notwithstanding some spectacular imagery, there wasn't enough of it. And overall, I was disappointed. And that also had to do with the fact that the film became too technical. It needed to break that down into more everyday speak. As a narrator, I would have liked Leeson to slow down, especially when presenting the most salient facts. Let them breathe and resonate with the audience. So notwithstanding the endeavour, The Last Glaciers is not compelling enough nor family-friendly enough, Peter. 
Um, look, I, I think it's an important message that the film delivers. Um, however, uh, I tend to agree with you that it is overly didactic uh, and and the way it is sort of edited um, into its 40-minute uh, version, there is a 100-minute version of this film, not for IMAX but for general release uh, as a documentary. The, this 40-minute version uh, tries to put together as much about the environmental impact Impact, as well as the paragliding that's uh, part of the film uh, as possible in these, uh, this very rigid sort of format which uh, uh, can't go any longer than 40 minutes for IMAX purposes. Look, I, I think there is a lot to admire in this film uh, and the messages that uh, Craig Gleason does present uh, in the film. Uh, however, I did find that it was overly academic and didactic for my liking uh, for if it was designed, as he says, for a younger audience to get them really motivated to do something about what's happening with uh, climate change. So uh, a brave attempt, not necessarily the, the best version attempt uh, of getting this message across, but uh, certainly it looks great on the big screen. Uh, I just but wish it was... Does it really look great? It's some shots look great. What did you think about the ropey, you know, it, it, we're not talking a horror movie here. Well, we are because of the climate dying. But, but I mean, th those shots from the helmet, what, what did they show us? A, a lot but, of the time you, could, you, you, you couldn't even make out what it was showing you. Well, it gives you that immersive quality because he was learning to overcome his fear of heights uh, and you get that experience of what he what? was seeing and feeling. His fear of heights. Make a film about climate change. Fine. Make a film about extreme sport. Make it a separate film. Well, the 100-minute version of this uh, film uh, covers both of those in much You've more seen detail. You've seen no, it. no, no. I, I've just had a reference to it from uh, the IMAX people who told me about that. Yeah, I, I heard about that as well, but I can only judge what I saw. And if this is the cut-down version, then, yeah, I, I just hope that the 100 minutes is a lot more compelling. What did you think of it, Dave? Look, I thought that the message behind the film was really compelling, but my biggest issue with this film was that it wasn't shot on IMAX cameras and a lot of the GoPro footage actually comes across quite blurry um, on the IMAX <laughs> screen. And I know that they did run into issues with this film, including their cinematographer sadly passed away um, while practising some of the stuff for this film. So they did lose their cinematographer um, while they were making the film. But... I just don't understand why when they decided, okay, we're going to do a different slant for this film, why wouldn't they have pitched that idea to IMAX and got an IMAX camera um, to have made it look watchable? Because there were there were times, and I was sitting closer to the screen than I normally would at IMAX, but some of the scenes were absolutely unwatchable. Um, they were that blurry. So I don't get why if you were going to make a film for IMAX, you wouldn't use IMAX cameras and instead use GoPro cameras that, that look really bad on that screen. It, it kind of distracted from the message. And I think the message is very, very important um, with this film, especially when they go into discussing what the loss of glaciers means for not only people in that region, but people right around the world. That's an important message, but I think a lot of people are going to get put off by the by the blurry footage when they sit down to watch it in IMAX. Yep, I totally agree with you. What about you, Greg? I haven't seen it. Oh, okay, no problems. Well, look, it, it's, I mean, it's funny because 
funny is the wrong word, but I, I actually spoke to the publicist the day before yesterday who, who took it all very well because she sort of said to me, oh, I'd like to know what you think of the film, and I gave it to her straight, and she appreciated the, the candour. I've got this huge admiration for, for Leeson. I think he's a remarkable individual. I, I really do. Uh, I just, you know, like it, it didn't engage me. It, it I found it boring in parts, and the messaging... Yeah, it hits us over the head with a message. I, I think it's a really important message. I, I don't disagree with any of it. But if this is meant to be aimed at eight-year-olds, eight-year-olds aren't going to be engaged by it. That's the thing that really up, upset me, I suppose, when I walked out. I thought, you know, would I take my grandson, who's seven, and the answer is no. I wouldn't. He wouldn't, he wouldn't be involved enough. And that's the whole point of the film, Peter, isn't it? It is, it is. It's all, these are docos are always meant for a younger audience. Uh, uh, I'm not quite as averse to the visuals as uh, as you both are. Uh, I think uh, that works reasonably well in terms of its storytelling. But, yes, it's a, it's a film that's a bit of a compromise uh, to some extent and maybe the 100-minute version uh, covers this much, much better. Yeah, I mean, I, I must admit, do you know where we can see that 100 minutes? I mean, is, is that going to be released in cinemas or it's going to be only online, the 100-minute the version, Peter? I have no, no. Most likely online. I, I'll, I'll find that out, but uh, I have a feeling that uh, it, it wasn't going to be a cinema release. Yeah. Ha look, having said that, if you – I can't remember the website. The Last Glaciers is – lastglaciers.com or words – look, just, just Google it, folks, The Last Glaciers, because I, I totally agree with the rest of you that the, the messaging is, is critically important. And, you know, when they go around and they, you know, talk the, the kids who, who want the world to sort of pay attention, uh, I mean, even that, 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 that's given very short shrift in, in this particular film, maybe the 100 minutes will give it a little bit more. So, okay, score out of 10, Peter. Let's start with you. Look, I think it's an okay IMAX documentary, but it's not one of the best I've seen at all. Uh, six out of 10. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I, I think this is one of the more disappointing documentaries. I'm giving it a five. What about you, Dave? Yeah, I'm giving it a five as well. Albie Mangles used to get clearer shots when he was being chased by lions. So, yeah, five out of ten for me. All righty. Well, look, let me now turn to a piece of theatre. Which but, I... uh, Before I go on, Alex, can we just quickly mention Angela Lansbury, who passed away this week at the age of 97 after a fantastic seven-and-a-half-decade career? Yep, by all means. I mean, exactly. Terrific. She reached a, a very fine age, and only yesterday we lost uh, uh, Robbie Coltrane. Yeah, that's uh, right. And, and I mean, he was he was much younger. He was in his early seventies. Seventy-two. So, yeah. Yeah. We, we, yeah but Angela Lansbury, sort of eighteen Emmy nominations for for not and never won one. Where she had three Oscar nominations, didn't win one as well. But she's won five Tony Awards and. Uh, several lifetime achievement awards from other organisations. So she's had a really fantastic career, and most people would know her now from um, Murder, She Wrote, which was on TV for 12 years. Absolutely. And, and yes, and she started at the age of 96, and I should mention she was in Mrs Harris Goes to Paris, the 1992 telly movie based yep. on the original novel, and now we're about to see the uh, new version of that story. And yeah. we'll get to see Angela Lansbury's last Queen appearance because she apparently has got a small appearance in... Um, Glass Onion and Knives Out, Missy, which comes out shortly. Yeah. Ah. Uh, and and yeah. I'm short for that. Now, before we go, I want to briefly mention this. It's called 
Bernie Dieter's Club Cabaret, K-A-B-A-R-E-2, at Runway Festival Park, which is at the Queen Victoria Market. It's part of the Fringe Festival, but it also goes beyond that. It's risky, it's ribald, it's R-rated, it's a treat. It features an astounding cavalcade of talent, provocative costuming, sexual tension, bawdy humour, original music, death-defying feats of strength, of dexterity, of precision, aerial skills, pole dancing, fire eating, they're all hot on the menu, hilarious audience interaction, not a single down moment, all act sizzle, one of the finest displays of artistic bite that I've had the good fortune to witness, knockout winner, as long as you're broad-minded, I've got to say, I cannot recommend Club Cabaret any more highly, and it starts with the appearance of the self-described mistress of mayhem, Bernie Dieter, and her powerful and silky vocals that are there throughout, accompanying a talented four-piece band. Her job is to stir up trouble, get the crowd on side. She does that in a heartbeat. Laughter abounds. And there's so much more to this. It is a brilliant, brilliant show. It really is. It pushes boundaries. It remains hugely entertaining throughout. She is a beauty, as is the whole collective, supremely talented troupe. There are, I think there's eight of them. Yes, there are. There are eight in, in, in particular. There's a drag queen. There are the fittest of fit athletes, a lot of them, and it's part of Melbourne Fringe. Get into the festival. There are tickets aplenty, and I reckon this is one of the best shows that I've, I've witnessed in all my years of going to shows. Bernie Dieter's Club Cabaret, Bernie, B-E-R-N-I-E, Dieter, D-I-E-T-E-R, apostrophe S, Club Cabaret. I reckon, Dave, you would really appreciate this, mate. It's it's something super special, and it's great that they can do some R-rated stuff. Why not? You know, it's good. So, folks, we've reached the end. It is first on Film and Entertainment. Peter Krause, thank you for your obtuse views. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. <laughs> and Gregory King, well, the Saints, or are they sinners now, my friend? They're still Saints, but they're going down the wrong path. And Dave Griffiths, you're always positive about the the, the, the swans, aren't you? Yeah, well, I, we, we'll fall away one day, but yeah, for now I'm looking forward to our kids coming through. We'll do it all again next week. Be good to one another. Catch you next week.